This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation. So, Neil, you're back. We excluded you from the interstitial while you were in your, your hour of desperate sickness. And now Mike is gone. And here we are again. Yeah, that's right. And well, I did get a chance to uh, listen to the interstitial, which, by the way, I have to say, I love the name interstitial. <laughs> I think it's great. It makes us feel really intellectual, which is important <laughs> because we're always like talking to smart people and then doubting our own abilities. So we're like, if we use a word like interstitial... We'll seem a lot smarter than we yeah, are. There's nothing like a big word. Uh, but I actually uh, just, you know, really actually enjoyed what you and uh, Micah uh, talked about. In particular, you know, how to make connections out to some bigger things that haven't been there. Uh, you guys talked about some, I think, interesting things. And, you know, we were talking about uh, the invisible connections. And I got an email from a listener this very morning that said, how about religion? You guys didn't talk about religion much, and it hasn't been a big theme in the project. And I thought... That's a perfect segue into who we're talking about today, which is Phyllis A. Tickle. She was the founding editor of the religion department at Publishers Weekly. She did that back in 91, but she's also written and is continuing to write an enormous number of books, including several about emergence Christianity, um, but she's written a lot of other things about, she's written prayer manuals and journal articles, but we're really going to be talking about emergence Christianity today, which is a subject that I didn't even know existed until last November when I was in the midst of working on this project and was at dinner with an old friend and was asking her, you know, what are some themes you think I should address? And she said, well, have you thought about emergence religions or emergent faiths? And uh, I said, you're going to have to just point me to someone and I'll start to learn. So she pointed me to Phyllis and uh, luckily I was able to contact her and not long after that, um, drove to Memphis and interviewed her there. So that's a little of the background, and we'll get into a lot more of what emergence is here. Yeah, and I think one thing probably to note up front is that, you know, I think like you, Angus, a lot of people probably haven't heard of emergence. Uh, and there's also a lot of new terms that uh, are used in the conversation. And so we'll sort of do our best job in the outro to define a lot of this stuff and sort of move into more of our sort of conversation-y style after we kind of digest uh, some of these newer terms. So you have to bear with us a bit. Yeah, and as we launch into this, you know, the front end of this conversation lays out a lot of stuff. And then Phyllis and I have more of a, a back and forth that picks up later in the episode. It's a pattern you've probably heard before, but there's a lot more to lay out in this. And uh, this was a long, another one of these very long conversations. This was over two hours. There were lots of components that sort of built on top of each other, and I've had to edit a lot of it out for clarity and just for time. So... As always, just be aware that when you listen to an episode, this is a very polished, edited product. The emergence, um, it's being called the great emergence, and I think that's the most unfortunate term we could ever give to anything. I mean, what does that mean? But about every 500 years, that part of the world that was subjected to Latinized Christianity or that was susceptible to the Latin language, if you will, or colonized or colonialized by those who were so receptive. Goes through some kind of giant whoopee or uh, change or reformation. You can give it all kinds of funny names. We have a bishop in the Episcopal Church who says, it's just a giant rummage sale. Get used to it. You know, every 500 years we have one. And, and historians get really nervous about patterns. 
uh, that's changing a bit now. Uh, and the truth of it is there's not much way to avoid the 500-year cycle. You, you almost have to work too hard to unsay it. It's, it's so obviously there in every way. And um, if you say every 500 years we go through one, then you immediately say we're in the 21st century, and baby, are we going through one. Uh, and you go back 500 years, it uh, was the 16th century in the Reformation, right? Which clearly was a bit of a brouhaha, or a rummage sale, or whatever. And if you go back 500 years from that, you hit the 11th century, and um, well, what you hit at that point, of course, is a great schism, when East and West fell apart, and everybody was chewing everybody's cousins up to death. And, and 500 before that is the 6th century, and it gives you the great decline and fall. Uh, of Rome, and 500 before that gives you uh, the first century and the changing of the era in which everything is so dramatically changed that we even shift how we date things. And if you go back 500 years from the first century, you hit the Babylonian captivity, the end of First Temple Judaism and and the beginning of Second Temple. So they would argue that it's a Judeo-Christian phenomenon we're talking about, and in that part of the world that is subjected to Judeo or subject to Judeo-Christianization. Um, a good iman uh, wills, and I've had three or four of them in a very nice way, I don't mean aggressively, but stand up in a public gathering and say, you can't call it Judeo-Christian. It's a phenomenon of the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, and they will argue, again, fairly persuasively, that what we're going through right now uh, in the Islamic world, uh, in Arab Spring, now in its, what, second or third year, depending on how you count it, is very analogous to what happened to Christianity in uh, the early 16th century, and that they are in Reformation, and they are speaking in those terms, that they're just 500 years after. All of which says that uh, we do something every 500 years. That doesn't mean that we have to keep doing it for 500 years. We're not talking about historic determinism, which is what makes historians really nervous. Um, we're not talking about historic determinism. We're also saying that it's a fool who doesn't look uh, when the patterns are there uh, and at least interpret his own times, didn't have to project the future. This is not about religion. This is about something that happens in the culture in which every dadgum thing shifts, everything. Politics, economics, sociology, uh, aesthetics, uh, philosophy, everything shifts, including religion. And most people know enough about the Reformation from high school, if nothing else, so that when you say to them, remember in high school when they told you about the Reformation? And they said, it was the birth of individualism, it's the beginning of the Second Renaissance, it's uh, the beginning of the nation state, it's the coming of capitalism, it's the rise of the middle class, and oh, by the way, it gave us Protestantism, yada, 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 uh, which is maybe a secular way of looking at it, but it's a much more accurate way. Uh, that is to say that religion is contextualized. I don't care whose religion it is, it's contextualized. And when the context shifts, it shifts too. But rarely does it shift outside of context. And one of the, these 500-year things, whatever they are, are a shift in every single thing in every way. And in 1900, the average Caucasian male lived to be 47 years old. We have five times more words in the English language right now than William Shakespeare had when he wrote the plays. Two-thirds of the human genome is owned and patented by commercial firms, not by us. That ought to scare somebody to death, you know? Information doubles uh, in less than every 10 months now. Almost 80% of us live at least 40 miles away from where we were born, which means that there's a total severance with the geo domestic situation, uh, the conservatory effect of the village uh, is gone. So it, it, it's, it, it's got its humor, uh, but it's also got its uh, serious sides, which is that every single thing changes. We live in a globalized world. The nation state is no longer the powerful image. Uh, the individual no longer counts. There's no longer such a thing as hierarchy. There can't be hierarchy because none of us is bright enough to tell the rest of us what to do. We've moved to a communal way of, of doing business. Um, we are uh, deeply distrustful of those things that are not uh, capable of being felt physically to some extent. There's thing after thing after thing. Those are huge changes, huge changes. Certainly, if you look at the futurist, and you do, uh, if you look at Nick Bostrom at Oxford, um, if you look at Ray Kurzweil, right? I mean, the singularity, transhumanism. These are serious people. They're not idiots. Uh, they're associated with major institutions of learning. And as we move toward transhumanism, the nature of the human animal is going to change. 
I said that uh, every every time we go through one of these whoopies, the same question is, where now is our authority? And then there are two or three concomitant ones. One of the huge ones for the great emergence is, we don't know what a human being is for the first time. Are we just consciousness? Uh, you know, are we um, a bunch of neurons with chemicals flowing over us? And uh, if we are more than that, where is that? Where is imago dei? Where, you know, we just absolutely don't know who and what we are. It's just the whole thing is up for grabs. Um, and it's both unsettling to many people. It excites me to death, but I'm almost 80, and I'm going to get out of Dodge before it matters, so I can afford to be fascinated and excited. If I were 25 and rearing my first child, I might not be so excited. Uh, and there, there, as I say, a zillion things that have made the emergence. But a big part of the burden of it is we just don't know who we are. So, uh, uh, yes, largely due to technology, technological, as was the Reformation. On the other hand, the technology was born out of a certain social discontent or push forward. Based on, on some of those things, causality. We talked about the big cycle and the changes. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense people are collectively making those changes but there's also a bigger sense of like i mean you say it's not historically determinist but i think it's hard to get into anything cyclical without making it sound like this is something that you maybe it's in our code you you tip your hat at the academics and go right on doing it right (laughs) um and so i'm wondering if we're talking about emergence is emergence something is it coming from us Oh, boy, do you really want to hear that? Now, <laughs> now I will give you a religionist answer, okay? okay. Um, and to give you a whole answer, let me go back to Charles Darwin in 1859 when he began to publish evolutionary theory. Almost everybody in, in the sciences, so far as we know, concurred. There were a number of scientists who said, that's interesting, but it doesn't explain everything. The most prominent of them was a man named Luz, arguing that evolution could not explain, evolutionary theory, could not explain human consciousness. Uh, He said, we have known uh, since Aristotle that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. What we have to acknowledge is that every once in a while, and certainly in the case of human consciousness, the whole is greater than any very careful analysis of the parts could have ever predicted. And he postulated that at some point, sometimes, there is something that comes in laterally. It does not come from the bottom up or the top down. It comes into the organism and changes it in such a way that it then uh, affects the environment. And that consciousness was such a phenomenon. What Luz called this was emergence and the discipline of it, emergence theory looking for what it was that comes in laterally and makes something emerge uh, that could not possibly have been predicted. Um, the uh, Why when a flock of birds, this was a great one from about 1903 or 4, I think. Uh, why a flock of birds, when it's migrating, will have a leader and then, apropos of nothing, from around and back, here will come a new one and take over the lead, and in a little while, here will come another one from the other side and take over the lead. It's emergence theory because they're moving as a flock and not an entity, and something emerges and it goes on. Then you begin to get the uh, realization that Luz was right, that there is something uh, out there that they didn't have a name for until Norbert Weiner at Harvard came along in the 40s. And he said, information theory. He's the first to name it. When you get to Norbert Wenger, you're aware that there are three components to the universe. And probably this is it. It probably really is it. There is mass, no question about it. There is energy, obviously, and who knows that. There's also information. And the three determine uh, what is. And all that is is composed uh, of of the three of them. The most fascinating, the most fascinating thing to me right now, doing what I do, is that for the first time ever, I think, certainly for the first time in 4,000 years that we know of, we have the rapprochement of physical science and philosophy and theology, all of them coming together around the fact that information is indeed there. And the uh, physicists particularly, but the philosophers, and I'm generalizing, are turning and saying to the theologians, you had it right in the first place, didn't you? 
and they quote in in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, um, which is fascinating. If it makes you happier to call it hologos, the Word, great. Uh, if you want to call it information, great. So uh, the the Great Emergence obviously got called the Great, it got named originally uh, by a scientist, by a sociologist and a biologist, who said that whatever is happening this time uh, is analogous. Uh, it, it really is something coming in from the side. It's not coming top down. It's not coming bottom up. Uh, and the society that's resulting from it follows that model. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, about yeah, about, about the role of agency, because once you point to emergence, how does that not encourage people to check out, right? Because, well, you know, it's going to happen, <laughs> right? I mean, you can get into this sort of like, when you get Vitalistic. the big cycles, right? You get yes. the sense that, well, I'm this little part and I'm moving through the samsara wheel or whatever it is. <laughs> and that's that, you know, and, and the best thing you can do is acquiesce. And maybe that's right. And maybe yeah. that's fine. Um, but at that point, does conversation even matter, right? Something I've been trying to get at here in terms of this, like, is there any agency? Because if there's no agency, it almost feels purposeless to ask about the status quo, right? If there is agency, then the status quo matters because then we are in some way capable of responding to it. Okay, tell me what you mean by agency. I'm, I'm, I'm not putting about, you on, but I mean... if Yeah, it, no, I'm thinking about um, personal free will. <laughs> okay, all right. Leadership or somebody marshalling the troops. Yeah, not that kind of thing. It, it, it's not, it's, it's not going to happen. That would be antithetical almost to, to emergency in any ways. However... Having said that, um, yes, there is um, there is agency, and it's called Facebook, or it's called Google, or it's called uh, Twitter, or it's any of those things in which the conversation, the melding of ideas, is the thing that's driving it. If there's an agency in all of this, it's the ability to have instant uh, exchange about the things that don't make sense the minute they begin to not make sense. In addition... And now you have to be a Christian or a, a religionist. There are men and women uh, who have become very clear spokespersons of what's wrong with the status quo and what the hope is beyond it uh, and what emergence has to say about it. Now, you can call them leaders as long as you don't think they're out there being paid to um, take a position and lead the band. They're not. Clergy and leaders are no longer privileged in emergence, but there are folk out there who are articulating what's wrong with what is and where it looks like the future is going. Now, from the point of view of a practicing or devout Christian, I would say uh, that is indeed the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I think Harvey Cox would say, that's what I'm trying to tell you is this one is different from any other except 2,000 years ago because we now have a direct agency coming in and your word uh, and telling us what to do. But our agency isn't going to be in human flesh, uh, or it's going to be human flesh that is uh, inspired by uh, this thing. Now, scientists might say that's information. Philosopher might say that's hologos, and let's don't try to... But there's, there's your agency, as long as we both know what we're talking about when we use that word. Right, and I'm, I'm interested more in the Christian communities. Okay. <laughs> and so in that setting, then, what is the status quo that people are pushing off against? So the status quo that people are pushing off against um, is Protestant inerrancy. It is biblical inerrancy. Um, it is the notion of hierarchy. The sphere of operation has moved from out there to here, from later to right now. Spirituality has shifted. It used to be the spirituality for the individual. It used to be a thing where I retreated into myself. Now there's an understanding that spirituality is a thing out. It is a thing joining the spirit that is all over the world. It's that kind of thing. It is the assumption that um, that we can perceive and understand completely. So there's a everything. certain hubris. Yeah. There, that there's a huge hubris, as a matter of fact. Not a certain, a huge hubris. One of the um, parts that draws me, if you will, persuades me, is the passion for the scripture with the understanding that it's actual instead of factual. Whereas the Protestant has contended and built a worldview on the factuality of the scripture. What does that mean? Which is to say, their theologians will look you dead in the face and say, do you understand the amount of human arrogance inherent in being able to think you can reduce God Almighty to an outlinable position? 
Yeah. And, and if you put it that way, it's funny, right? I mean, excuse me? Uh, yeah, I, you're right. I, you know, or, or they will say, you know, Jesus Christ would have failed systematic theology in any seminary going. To which my response is, and say Paul sure would have. He was a contextual theologian, you know. Uh, but there is an arrogance in thinking you can outline God. What they mean by actual is that it's absolutely the truth. Uh, in every way, it speaks truth. And it's our limitations that make it appear not to, our need to make it logical. And so where we don't understand, we follow um, in, in spirit uh, and with trepidation, realizing our own limitations prayerfully. And it's that approach uh, to the Scripture that gives them real passion for the Scripture. But most Protestants wouldn't recognize it uh, because by the same token, um, same-sex marriages absolutely ought to happen. Whatever is your problem, you know, gender inclusiveness, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a fool, for instance, who says that the Bible doesn't admit of slavery. It does. Excuse me? Uh, Jesus tells a couple of stories in which slaves play a part, and he never one time says that's a no-no. But comes a time when it doesn't make any sense, so we get rid of it, right? And an emergence would say, that's Micah 6.8 theology, and they're big on Micah 6.8. What does the Lord thy God require thee? That thy love, mercy, act justly and walk humbly with your God. And it trumps everything else, they will say. So there, you know, but uh, there's a huge tension uh, between emergence Christians and uh, Protestants, especially the evangelical division of Protestantism which is where we're getting a, a lot of our abrasion right now. So what happens if the status quo doesn't change? If emergence were going to cease to be, if suddenly it was just going to stop dead in its tracks where it is, and there are about a third of Americans we now know who are practicing a variant of emergence worship. Doesn't have to be Christian. Can be Jewish, can be Wiccan. But who, and that's, that's a lot of us who are doing, but if that were to really stop dead, this thing would crumble. This thing that has been cannot support the weight of what we now know and can do. Hmm. I mean, that sounds like without this, like That's without, right. without emergence Christianity or emergence any kind of theology, you have an enormous existential crisis? Yeah, well, uh, among other things. I mean, And that, the, that leads to other problems. Uh, yeah, it goes, it, it filters out then into everything. I mean, Go back uh, to the Reformation, because, again, it's comfortable. If somehow we had not been able to develop, if you will, a, a Christianity that was not pope down like this, enforced by the state, enforced by kings, would we ever have had nation states? It wouldn't have. On the other hand, nation states looked as if they were going to come. They just couldn't be supported by the old paradigm. And so we would have had a disaster. Nothing in inherited church, nothing in inherited religion is going to be able to support information theory. It's not going to be able to support the Internet. It's not going to be able to support globalization. It's not going to be... Uh, it can't. And, but having said that, let me also say that one of the first things you say to audiences anyway is that every time we go through one of these things, whatever holds hegemony, whatever holds pride of place, doesn't cease to exist. It'll continue. It just has to reconfigure to fit the new paradigm. I mean, Roman Catholicism didn't cease to exist, right? If Protestantism had been unanchored or untroubled by Roman Catholicism, God knows where it would have gone. It would have shipwrecked us. In the same way, emergence can't afford to not have Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and to some extent Orthodoxy and Anglicanism holding on to its tail. So the tension and the balance, unhappy as it may be, uh, is still apparently necessary to keep the thing from wrecking. And at some point, this thing's got to find some sort of corpus, if you will, or maybe not corpus, uh, has to find some sort of um, cohesion or commonality. And that's kind of what I was wondering. I think that's where you were going, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I was trying to get a sense of where are we pushing off and then a sense of where are we going to. Most examples of things that we can say, this is an ontological thing, right? There's stuff, there are parameters. You've got a sense of solidity to it. Like, this Sorry. is the church, this is the hierarchy. And this is like, oh, there's this giant conversation happening on the internet, and there's a new moral order emerging out of it. You know, that's, that's right. like hard to grab on. That's onto, right. It's you know? like mercury on a counter. 
It's a, and I've used that metaphor many times. It's like chasing a, a bead of mercury on a chemistry lab counter. Um, it's it's you ain't gonna grab it. Nonetheless, it's there and infusing the conversation. And and you know, okay, Protestantism is a term we understand, right? We can sit here and say we know what Protestantism is. But we also recognize it as a, a rubric or an umbrella or something uh, under which you can get Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Lutherans, yada, 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 yada. And we know that those are distinct things, even though they share this umbrella or this kind. Emergence Christianity is to the conversation as Protestantism is to that conversation. I can sit here and I can make you a list of, I don't know, 10 or 12 major characteristics that inform emergence Christians that all of them are going to have to some greater or lesser degree. But I can also sit here and make you, again, according to whom you quote, 6 to 12 different and distinct divisions within emergence Christianity. They're not denominations. Don't call them that. God help you. If you do, you'll be smished. Within each of those, you have something close to a structure god forbid you should say so but i mean there's a center if you will that's what yeah i was curious about that uh, yeah, well, it seems like the granularity is a lot finer here uh, that's between right, that but and like protestant you know denominations right because this way it can almost break down to the individual you could say well this is they belong to this sort of group that thinks in a common way but because it's not codified yeah and it's never going to codify and if it doesn't codify then how is it not totally individual again yeah, well, it's never going to codify, but it's going to be held together. Um, see, we're back to the spirit. Uh, it's going to be held uh, together by the common exercise of, of prayer, uh, which is not easy to get at. I mean, it's a nebulous thing. What does it actually look like? What are the actual changes in day-to-day life? Like, what does it mean socially? How do people live differently? Uh, how do people live differently? Uh, I, I think it's going to mean, first of all, you're not going to see the huge churches. Uh uh, secondly, you're going to see a much greater emphasis or uh, merging, if you will, of aesthetics uh, with religion. What do you mean by uh, aesthetics formal. there? Uh, painting, uh, much more interest in dance. Certainly uh, the merging of uh, the expression of, of religious fervor and worship um, in a place that is aesthetically uh, there. Incarnational, much more incarnational. Uh, give me music I can dance to. Don't give me performance music I have to sit down and listen to. Allow me to give expression to my faith with my body in the middle of a gathering, uh, be it with song, if I just break into song, or if I move around, uh, or if I go over and, and paint a picture. Um, Jesus Christ didn't live in a gated community, and he doesn't much want us to either. So you're going to get the removal of the ghetto by just sheer infiltration. But you're going to see the eradication of the, or the gentrification, if you will, uh, or the merging of the ghetto and the leveling of class. I think what you may also see, and this does not please me, and I don't think it's a fault of emergence. I think what we may be seeing is the... uh, the eradication of the so-called middle class that the Reformation gave us, and the return to the intelligentsia and uh, uh, lower class and serf, all living together in perhaps harmony, I don't know, and the emergence of a um, uh, upper class uh, based on um, almost ruthless economics, not on blood. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I think that's one of the... When you talk about the dangers, mm-hmm. I, and I don't see anything in emergence that's going to put a break on that. That's kind of what I was wondering, because when you were talking it's not about... not going to. You know, if, if there's a, a new or a stronger or a different moral emphasis on helping people, that has enormous economic implications, right? Because that's yes. coming from... That's like a moral imperative that is different than... The imperative that motivates you in the economic system. But I will help you with what I have. Don't ask me to fool with all these organizations and these eleemosynary things and all of that junk. I have two loaves of bread. It's all I've got. I'll give you one. That's emergence. But I'm not going to go out there and fill out 200 pages of paperwork to get GE's foundation to give us a bakery. Mm Mm-hmm which is a whole different thing. It's a whole different way, an experiential, uh, if you will, giving. And, and, and I don't know if it's good or bad. I just think, I just know it's there. So if you have some, some doubt over your own ability to access or understand truth fully, but you know you have to make a pragmatic difference, you're trying to improve or redeem the world, isn't kind of the vehicle of that politics and isn't making Not choices? Not if you're doing it to your next-door neighbor. 
Okay. But you still have to have a sense of enough certainty to act, right? Absolute certainty. The Spirit is with us constantly, and we are in communion through prayer. These are deeply prayerful, deeply devout. These folk are devout in a way, oh, God, this is, okay, I might as well say it. The average emergence Christian is going to be passionately devout in a way that the average Protestant no longer is, which is to say that there's going to be daily engagement, not only individually, but communally, two or three maybe, uh, with the Spirit and which, with what we're being told and how to do it. And you do it because you're led in prayer to do it. How is that different than any other theological tradition, which presumably, I mean, they would say we have the same access. This is That's this right. Is how long have you inspired. employed it? How recently have you employed it? Where was the passion? What really happens, I think, every 500 years, when you get right down to it, is the passion dries. It, it becomes institutionalized. It, you know, it becomes formalized, formulaic, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and it just loses its um bum uh, and becomes humanized, probably. And then we go through one of these things where we suddenly realize we've lost it. And then we find it, and we're so overjoyed, uh, and we enjoy it and practice it. I think that may be a simplistic uh, thing, but it looks to me like uh, there was nothing wrong, if you will, uh, about the Judaism into which Jesus was born, right? Other than it had what? Stullified, right? I mean, it, it, it That's divided. a very different sort of cycle to think of it on, it's yeah. as passion versus ossification. I, I think it's passion. I think it's ossification. I, I do. I mean, I think that's what, huh. you know. So if it's not, if, if let's say we're talking in that case and the old Judaism wasn't worse, is this not a progressive thing going somewhere? Is oh, it just don't go change? to progressive. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to, though, because you no. can't talk about these big cyclical no. historic changes if you're not right, without addressing yeah. no, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not persuaded that uh, everything is getting better, but I just think it's going round and round. And, and, you know, when I simplistically say passion and then solidification and then passion again, uh, I also have to admit that technology has come in every single time. It's been a technological thing, right, uh, as well. I mean, even 2,000 years ago, uh, um, and we've got common coinage. We've got, for the first time, real easy navigation and, and all of, the, of those things. So technology happens. Maybe it's the technology rattles us so um, that we realize our stullified belief system can no longer keep up with the technology, and we go off on a, a different and passionate That's pursuit of a different spirituality. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Probably the place I want to go from there, then, would be um, conversation with other people. We've talked a lot about... Emergence, we've talked about the idea of this 500-year cycle. This project is, of course, talking to a lot of other people with a lot of different backgrounds, right? Of course, you know, of course. So many of whom would uh, patently disagree with everything we've talked about. Uh, of course, of um, course. And yet here we are all living together. And the question we all have is, well, how do we how do we have a better future? And some people I've talked to have talked about, well, we're really on the brink for these environmental and economic and various things. Other people have said, well, we are on a ramp to a better world. Um so I'm curious how our conversation about emergence connects to other conversations, especially ones about value, which is kind of the lowest level that I've been talking about in this project. It's kind of the irrational assumption of what's good. In this, it seems like there's a very, there's an emerging idea of what's good. There are a lot of other people who have other ideas. Does conversation with them matter? Do, do I say anything to you when I say Gabe Lyons and Q? No, I can tell. Uh He's the one you should be asking that question to. Q meets every year, and it's the coming together of futurists uh, and emergence. And they talk about that very thing. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating to bring all those disciplines together. And Gabe has been the one who has sort of led the, uh, led the band, thinking that that conversation had to happen. Now, however, the question you're basically asking, from my point of view, uh, dealing with emergence, the question you're basically asking is, where now is our authority? Uh, which happens every single time we go through one of these. What we lose is authority. What we lost 500 years ago was the Pope, the Magisterium, and the Curia. And what we lost 1,000 years ago was conciliary, uh, you know, whatever. What we've lost this time um, is obviously a certain moral code and a codification of values and all that kind of thing, Constantinian Christianity. We've lost it. The truth of it is, right now, nobody knows an answer to your question. Whether we're speaking religiously, whether we're speaking politically, whether we're speaking sociologically, nobody knows where the authority is. It's free-floating like anxiety. 
which is probably why you're chasing the answer to some extent, too, <laughs> is the discovery that you've got an unanswerable question. Um, yeah, and I also think looking historically, I mean, has it ever really been answered? You know, societies may well, answer uh, it within themselves, the, right? The, a society, again, by pattern, uh, a, a society will come up with a set of answers it will agree to. Don't have to like it, but we will accept the fact. That's the code. How now shall we live is a much better way to put it. And we will arrive sometime by the end of this century, I suspect, in an answer to that question, how now shall we live? Uh, and we'll, we'll do it for a couple of hundred years. And uh, then we won't like it anymore and we'll begin to tear it down if we, if we do the same thing that we've always done. But there is no answer to your question right now. And, oh, yeah. And, and I, would, I, I would argue to the death with anybody who gave you an answer. I don't care whether it's an <laughs> entrepreneur or an economist or something. Bull. Now, I do think... I laughed a minute ago about progressivism, just got to be like historical determinism. You just didn't go there. If you were an academic, a self-respecting academic, you didn't go there saying we're getting better and better or that, you know, we're we're moving forward to some higher right. thing. No, I think it is very I, common, like outside I, of academia. It, it, that's it's right, really to, to believe that, you know, we are going so. And let's be honest, I think we're farther along than 2,000 years ago, right? I mean, I would much rather be alive right now than in the year of our Lord 850 or, or 1430 or something, you know, I mean, dying of all that stuff and living to be 47, good heavens, I don't want that. And, and I think we uh, we obviously are, are going farther in, in some ways. And I absolutely agree with Ray Kurzweil. I never thought I'd say that, but I, I truly agree with Ray Kurzweil um, that we, I think, are about to make a major lurch forward. I mean, people laugh about him, but uh, I'm sure he doesn't care one way or the other. It's like I'm pretty sure he doesn't care whether I agree with him or not. And nonetheless, uh, I think we're probably about to make a lurch forward. I think we're about to change probably a good deal of what it is to be human. I think that's where it's going to go. And I think that probably is progress, if by progress you mean uh, a more complete life a more productive life, uh, a more effectual life, uh, a more joyful life uh, for the individual as well as for his or her tribe, I think that's definitely going to happen. But uh, how now should we live? Who's calling the shots? What is ultimately good? What's going to be called the sunum bonum? We don't know, I don't think. And I suspect by 2030, and that's Kurtzfield's date, we may have reconfigured the human condition enough. Uh, we may moved near enough to transhumanism or to artificial general intelligence so that uh, the definition of good would not be one that you and I would necessarily recognize uh, in terms not of ultimate good, which is a God thing for me, but in terms of how that ultimate good is applied uh, in physical living. And that's way out there. And I never, I've never said that before, and I'm not sure I should be saying it now. But I think I would, I would, I would lay a good deal of, uh, well, I guess I have laid a good deal of money on it because all I've got is my reputation, right? And if I'm too far out there, that suffers. But I think that's where it's going. Does that leave you optimistic or pessimistic? Of course. Of course it's optimistic. Or it, 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 my optimism, again, you're talking to a practicing Christian. And, and my optimism, uh, I, I guess optimism is not a thing I normally think of myself as having or not having. I believe that God is redeeming, and that is what's happening. And as long as we stay tuned uh, and continue to do what we're being told and prayerfully seek it, and seek it in community. See, now I'm talking like emergence. Seek it in community uh, and discern in community with each other then uh, I think we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and that ultimately that will uh, result in the redemption of creation, which I suppose is a form of optimism, but it's certainly tempered by uh, religious overlay. It's not optimism in the sense that we'll be better humans. Uh, It's uh, optimism in the sense that creation will be finally redeemed. Okay, so I think that one thing we ought to do here, Angus, is uh, actually maybe offer a little bit of what we thought the outline of the discussion uh, that you, you two had would be, uh, just to kind of create a little bit of a commonality here. At this point, I think we all have a better sense of what, what these emergence things are, but they're still pretty nebulous. I mean, that's something that Phyllis talks about specifically, but we can certainly point at what it's pushing against, right? I mean, what makes it so perfect for this project 
is that we spent all of our time talking about these enormous changes and we're playing with this hypothesis about is this sort of a unique historical moment and of course you know how many caveats that comes with we won't get into that but like that is what's motivating i think phyllis's curiosity and it seems like the emergence movement more generally the sense that everything's changing why isn't christianity the main thrust of North American Christianity is going in the opposite direction as all of these other social changes. Something's got to give. Right. Yeah. I think that the terminology seems to be so different to me between, you know, this emergence Christianity and evangelical Christianity, where in the latter, you know, you have terms like tradition come up very frequently. And she's not really talking about tradition with emergence Christianity. She's using history and I think in a, in a far different way than um, the way maybe evangelicals would use some moments in history as models for what the future should be. Uh, she doesn't really seem to be longing after a particular past. Right. And what's interesting is, I mean, you just mentioned her use of history, and we've both studied history. You're like a legitimate historian. I'm a really third-rate guy with a master's degree. But I think for both of us, the role of history in this is fascinating, right? She's getting into cyclical history, which she doesn't see as being determinist, and I want to get into the progressive question later, but let's just start with talking about cyclical history. That was something I had a lot of trouble let's with. Let's just start with let's just start with the fact that you're the first person to call me a legitimate historian. <laughs> <laughs> and probably the last. <laughs> um, so, what are so, friends for? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so her use of history, right, and, and what, what she's doing with it. And, uh, you know, what, what I found to be really interesting is that, you know, we, everybody has a sense of history. And you don't need to be a historian to have a sense of history. What I liked about it is that she has a sense that things can change. I really liked, actually, the thing that she, she mentioned about slavery was that, you know, yeah, it's in the Bible. And, yeah, you know, there's historical evidence of slavery. But guess what? You know, it doesn't work anymore. And so there's no reason to sort of go back and try to repeat that. You can actually have big change, and, and that's okay. But that seemed like a theological thing to me rather than a historical one. That seemed like interpreting the Bible contextually, whereas her use of history seems much more, eh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's pretty structured. I mean, she's talking about 500-year cycles and, and these kind of like lead-ins to them of a, a period of time and then a decay at the end of it. And there's no way to get into it without talking about Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and him laying down the whole idea of the paradigm shift, which I feel like is really what we're dealing with here. It's this paradigm shift in Abrahamic faiths. I think she's pretty good about delineating it there. She's not trying to apply this to India or China or Southeast Asia, but... Um, but it feels too structured for me. Yeah, and I think that uh, if I'm the same as you on this, but for me, I think that part of this notion that maybe there's a little bit too much structure there comes from there's all these sort of cultural borders, right, between you know Europeans and you know the rest of the world, in particular through colonialism. And in a 500-year cycle, somebody might view one moment as a peak, and somebody else might view that very same moment as a valley. And I think that's kind of the problem with the structure here. I mean, I think she's pretty good at, at saying these aren't necessarily peaks and valleys. I, I like that she, this is our connection to, is history progressive here? Not progressive in the political sense, but in the sense that it's going somewhere. And she definitely says, no, it's not, and this isn't determinist. And I like that. But it's something about the notion of these time periods where I feel like there's so much lead in and so much lead out that it feels like the categories are so wide and flexible that anything can be put into them. Right. It, it seems to... Um explain maybe so much that uh, I wonder if, you know, really the uh, the 500-year cycle is, is actually there. If, say, the Age of Revolutions, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, what are they? Are they outcomes of 1500 or are they predating, you know, 2000? And, you know, if that's all they do and then they matter so much, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm really buying 500-year stuff. I don't, I don't really understand that either. And it seems... It's really fascinating to talk about the idea of cycles, because clearly there are these big changes, right? And yet, I don't even know if, if that historical stuff matters for 
her argument about emergence. Well, I think she did such a, a nice job of indicating all the ways in which the world is changing in, in big ways, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think we can kind of put our historical quibbles aside. Clearly, you know, what she's doing here is pointing to some, some massive changes. I mean, uh, she talks about the human genome and how uh, not only do we know so much of it, it's, you know, so much of it is um, patented. The migration away from places where you grew up is so common now. Life expectancy is so much longer. I mean, she points to some stuff that's, you know, changing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's for me, you don't need any of the 500 year cycle. You just need that stuff in front of us now. And you can say, okay, compare that to the rest of history and like, look at the different rates of change, look at the scales. And it feels like you've got a pretty solid argument that there are big social changes afoot. And I really like how she situates religion within this broader social context of things that change and causality is obviously really difficult to get into and we should talk more about emergence in a moment but um the idea that there may be enough evidence now where we're confronting significant questions and it feels like i mean again emergence christianity is is the reaction to that for me that explains the either need for a new type of faith to deal with that or the pressure to create a new type of faith or, or the existential crisis people would have that would leave them searching for one? Yeah, or just the natural inclination that, you know, if you're a sort of a religious person that, you know, you'd view these changes as being related to religion, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of leads us into what she sees as, as the biggest question that we face now, which is where's the authority? Right, I thought that was really interesting, you know, and I, you know, I was listening to that, you know, and I actually wrote down the quote, you know, nobody knows where authority is. And I thought, gosh, really? Is that true? And, and I realized, you know, I was listening to her and I, and I wasn't listening close enough. And when I heard authority, I think I was thinking power. And to me, you know, power is so concentrated in the world today. And I would argue that it's uh, concentrated primarily with corporations. And uh, I thought, well, you know what? That's that's different than authority, though, after I kind of thought about it a little bit longer. And I think when she was saying that nobody knows where the authority is, uh, you know, I think she was actually talking about something regarding, you know, authority to to lead people toward meaning, perhaps. Not quite the same thing as power, but I think that leads her actually in a place she thinks she, uh, we should be going towards more of a face-to-face notion of authority. Uh, is, was that your read? Break that down a little bit more. So... Why do we need it face-to-face? Well, she uses this example of the bread. Yeah, I guess any good Christian is going to use an example of bread. <laughs> <laughs> and, we never know. Is it ciabatta? Is it like a seven grain? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, this notion that what we sort of ought to be doing is face-to-face on a local level, it seemed to me she was saying, you know, share that bread. And she seemed to be uh, not really wanting to challenge sort of larger structures of power and authority, but really just sort of saying, look, the way to kind of maybe go forward is to think of the, the power you have to change the lives of the people who are right around you. And I think that that's what she was getting at with that sharing of the bread example, uh, which is, you know, I think a very sort of bracketed way of defining where, you know, authority can be. You know, she mentions at a point, like, talking about emergence Christianity in a very clinical and distant way. And in other moments, it's very clear that she believes much of it and agrees with a lot of it. And so when she's talking about the example of how does emergence Christianity deal with the authority question, you know, I mean, she mentions like that we may see this class stratification and she sees that emergence may not push back against that. It just may not be interested in that question. It may not have the tools to do that. I don't know if she agrees with that outcome, though. Right, and that's actually, I think, a big difference between Tickle's uh, description of emergence Christianity and some of the ideas we've seen sort of elsewhere in, in the conversation. And when I think about class, uh, you know, I, I often think about you know Douglas Rushkoff in this project. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, because he was uh, very active with Occupy, and also was somebody who's you know very interested in having Americans question the sort of strong role that corporations have in maintaining. A sort of a class-based structure in the United States. And that strikes me as just, you know, very different than the concerns uh, brought forth in, in the current interview. Yeah. And I mean, I was thinking, actually, I was, when I think class now, I really think of, of Chuck Collins. Oh, absolutely. Um, talking about the need for the upper classes to pay back into the thing for greater social harmony. 
I wonder, actually, you know, if, if we were to look at, at today's episode through the lens of Chuck Collins, would he say that, like, if emergence was a really widespread paradigm, and if Phyllis is right that it's not concerned with large-scale wealth redistribution, can it last? Because for Collins, it seems like you actually need to have a lot of wealth spread around to have a stable society at all. Like, this isn't a, a theistic question. This is just like a human nature and structure of society question. You know, the more of an income disparity you have, the more likely you are to fall apart. Right. So if I could go back to bread again, it's almost as <laughs> Let's if, go back you know, to bread. Yeah. You know, you need bread and circuses, right? <laughs> and the bread. Oh, you're going. Now we're getting into historical stuff again, <laughs> like Rome. <laughs> Well, what I meant by that was simply, uh, you know, the, the bread and circuses, right, is a gift from one class to another mm -hmm. and not between two individuals in uh, a society that sort of uh, doesn't think of class. Do you think that the kind of peer-to-peer -peer model of just giving whatever you have and not participating in, in the things that seem like more corrupt, filthy social structures... Can you ever really scale that kind of peer-to-peer -peer help model? Or do you always need people who are going to like go up the ladder and fight on your behalf? I, I mean, I just think the, the answer is, is so clear to me. I mean, I think you absolutely have to have people who question the structure of power, who, I guess, climb up that ladder to, to do a, a bit of fighting, um, simply because that hierarchy is, is already in place, right? There are people who are simply better positioned to do that fight because they have a vision, but also because they have resources to fight the fight with. And the people who I think very often uh, need to benefit from a restructuring of power are, are people who don't necessarily have the resources to, to do the fight. You know, we can almost think about emergence as a pendulum swing at the moment where it feels like maybe maybe part of it is pushing off against the idea that too much of our energies have gone centralized and more of them need to be local, more of them need to be peer-to-peer. -peer. And maybe the question is, when is it time for that pendulum to swing back? Oh, right. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's a lot of a lot of talk and speculation. And uh, this is a really interesting episode because, you know, we've made a couple connections here and yet it's charting a lot of new ground. You know, it's, it's kind of our first big solid conversation about religion. I mean, we spent most of this conclusion talking about Christianity. And really what we've tried to do with it, I think, to be honest about our little outro here, is try to map it onto a bunch of uh, secular concerns that we have. Yeah. You know, when I first recorded this, I thought, oh, man, I wish there were more connections I'd been able to make in the conversation. But it's sort of like unleashing an entire new vocabulary. This is, in a way, kind of a first episode. And I see this as one that we're going to refer back to more as we talk about religion more on the project. You know, and fingers crossed this project goes on long enough for us to have more of those conversations. Well, I think it's a great, uh, a great turn for the conversation. And uh, I, th I think it's just going to really prove to be fruitful. That was such a polite academic way to end things. I knew I could count on you. <laughs> hey, I'm a legitimate historian. That was Phyllis Tickle recorded in Lucy, Tennessee on December 3rd, 2012. And you are, of course, listening to The Conversation. Find us on the web at findtheconversation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Angus Anderson. I'm Micah Saul. I'm Neil Prendergast. And I'm Angus Anderson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>